Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, thank you so much for joining this episode of the Once Bitten podcast. Today's guest is Matthew Errett, who has written a book, The Clash of the Two Americas. Uh, volume one, I have sat through. It's absolutely excellent. The Unfinished Symphony, it is called. And it's about the formation of America and its uh, history, rich, deep history, and how the invisible hand of the British Empire never actually left those shores, even though they had a revolution. It's going to hurt a lot of US butts out there. And I call a couple of you plebs out in this episode, actually, especially those that gave me shit on 4th of July. You know who you are. So anyway, I hope you enjoy the episode. Matthew has such a deep, rich knowledge of historical facts and has really gone deeper than anyone I know uh, on these on these topics. He's been on Kay Van Devani's show about three times now. I've listened to him there. That's where I found him. And he was also on the Grand Theft World podcast as well, um, alongside uh, some other brilliant minds. Again, go and check out that podcast if you haven't already. Uh, before we get into this show, please make sure you are showing support to those companies that are showing support to this show, but not only that, to the community by building brilliant products. If it were not for these guys doing the hard work, we wouldn't be able to stack our Satoshis, the Bitcoin that we all need to free us from this fiat debt slavery. Uh, you can start stacking Bitcoin with swanbitcoin.com, relay.ch, coincorner.com. These are all Bitcoin-only companies. They have education at the first and foremost of their product. And they are going to make sure that you self-custody your Bitcoin as soon as you buy it. And if you are going to self-custody, make sure you do your research on which wallet to use. There are several out there. Find out which one is best for you. I can certainly recommend the shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bitten link, which is in the show notes. That will get you 5% off the Bitbox 02 Bitcoin only hardware wallet. It's a great piece of kit. Definitely check them out when you're doing your research. Are you going to any conferences to meet any of your online pleb friends in real life? Because if you are not, I certainly suggest you check out what's going on, especially now here in Euroland. We are getting a lot of these conferences starting to pop up again. We've got the Honey Badger in Riga. That's coming up start of September. I'm off to Biarritz literally this week, so I'm looking to hopefully see some uh, Euro plebs there surfing Bitcoin. Amsterdam's coming up, the big one. If you use the uh, the codes and hit the links in the show notes, you are going to get discounts to these. So this is the, uh, the Bitcoin Amsterdam conference brought to you by BTC Media, the Bitcoin magazine guys that are behind the Bitcoin Miami conference each year. You can also check out the Pacific Bitcoin conference that's being put on by Swan themselves. That's going to be in November if you want some sunshine on the west coast of the US and get to Liberty in Our Lifetime run by the Free Cities Foundation at the back end of Prague. 
I look forward to seeing you all there. Take care and enjoy this show with Matthew. Matthew Eritz, great to uh, great to meet you, man. Thank you so much for coming on. Very nice to meet you guys too. All right, Lauren, make this one uh, a good one. Yeah. You, you got a very interesting guy in front of you right here. What are enable enable rights? Good. Yeah, good. Could, could you repeat that one more time for me? What are in enabled rights? In, in a uh, enable. Yeah. We've been, she's been yeah, practicing. that's a <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Um, it just means rights that you have because you're a human being made in the image of God, um, and because you you are human, and we're all we all have potential when we're babies to be brilliant. You know, every baby could be a genius. I believe. I think you guys probably you you, you believe that every ba every baby can be a genius, right? Well, we're all human beings, and all human beings are well, pretty smart. Yeah, we're pretty smart if we're given the opportunity, and if we're if we're uh, born into a world that um, is unjust, where you have you know, let's say um, you're born into a a slave society that doesn't give you the opportunity to have education, and you're supposed to work, let's say, uh, from the age of five years of age in a mine, you know, digging for fourteen hours a day for some some bad people you're not going to be able to express or discover your talents, right? Whether you, you might be the world's greatest pianist, you might be the person who was gonna make the next breakthrough in, in medical science, and you'll never be able to discover those passions and those talents and those skills because you were not given the opportunities. So the people who most of human history has been shaped by very unjust systems, which has not given people the opportunity because they've been uh, based around the idea that rights are something that are given or can be taken away by a powerful class of people in control. And that's a false idea, you know, because how do you own somebody else's rights? You know, so the idea of the inalienable, inalienable rights are that um, the laws we create for ourselves have to protect and defend the opportunities we have to discover our, our talents and to express our talents in the best way possible in society. Um, and so liberty, life, you know, freedom, the right to have happiness, the right to, you know, make discoveries and, and live in security without a fear of war. Those are like universal. It doesn't matter if you're African or European or from Timbuktu. It doesn't matter. They're yours. And they'll always be true. That'll always in a million years, that'll still be true. Even if some people don't believe that and would rather have the idea that, no, you have rights because I'm the master and I've given you some rights to, you know, take a break. You know, that's, that's, that's absurd. Is that make, good? Make a bit of sense to you? Make a bit. Yeah. Now it makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Did you want to ask that, that other question? Yeah. Who are they? Who are they? Like the, with the capital T, they? Capital T? Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> How long uh, we yeah. <laughs> well, I think that flows nicely from the first question. Um, they um are hmm, simple yeah, fun questions um they are some um people who are holding on to values and traditions that are obsolete and outdated who refuse to accept the truth and so in today's world um you have uh you have 
parts of every nation which have uh, representatives elected by the people who represent the interests of the people. And then you have um, those who are either corrupt and represent uh, the interests of something else. And that's something else or and I say either corrupt or they're just too dumb to realize what they're a part of. Either way, their their actions and their work in life in politics or other is representing not the interests of humanity, um, but rather the interests of those who wish to enslave humanity and who exist, who, who try to operate above nations without any elected accountability. And by that, I mean, you know, if you if there's somebody who's elected as your representative in a, in a government and they do a job badly, you can vote them out. The next election, you can make sure that they are, they don't get the job again because they did a bad job or they're a liar, you know? Or you can impeach them. You could do a legal process of firing them as a people. There, so there's all sorts of things that, have, that are, are mechanisms that can be used by the people to uh, defend ourselves and to keep, um, keep in check dishonest or, or, or those with political power that we give power to. And then you have those who would like those opportunities to no longer be there. And a lot of them happen to, you know, um, marry into the same families. And, and some of these families go back a very long time. Like a really long time, way before. And they're not very smart. They, they have a lot of power. But you know what happens when you, when you like have brothers and sisters intermarrying and producing offspring? Do, do those do those children are 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 they going to be smarter or dumber based on the inbreeding? What do you think? Um, like if a brother and a sister marry and have a kid, is that kid going to be I, healthy? No, not no, not really no. Generally not no, and uh, that's where you get a dumbing down within these. Um, um, they within the they community who try to wield their their power, their money over generations um, to keep everybody else enslaved in various ways. Um, they they themselves can't really maintain their own existence very effectively because they they make their own children dumber too. Both genetically by inbreed in, intermarrying within within the family, it's very hillbilly. Um, but it's also um, in terms of culturally they they their kids themselves get also worse and worse educational experiences than their grandparents so that on every level they get dumber and that's uh, that's a scary thing in some ways considering that some of these people make decisions about whether we go to war whether we have peace usually it's war um but at the same measure if you're a good person who thinks in a more healthy way that gives you an advantage to um to doing battle with those sorts of things, which is where a lot of the good things in history have happened, you know. So, like the American Revolution was was not done. You know what the American Revolution was all about? Uh, yeah, it's when England took over like America. America wanted peace. Is that right? England was controlling America, and and the um, the the colonies, the British colonies in the Americas. Uh, decided they didn't want to suffer injustice anymore and they declared independence and they had a war over it for like six years. And that was a war about the idea of inalienable rights, that that the England was based upon a type of structure of power, which was based on the idea of hereditary power, that I am 
I am the, the queen or a duke or a, you know, a lord because my, my dad was and his dad was and his dad was. And that's why I have the right to have power and live in a mansion and control my, 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 my slaves, who's everybody else. Um, and so that created a lot of injustice and a lot of abuses. And so in, in the American colonies, they were able to organize for a different type of government, which was by the people and for the people. So a type of government for the first time premised around the idea that we're, gonna, we're not going to have a king or nobles who are born into hereditary power, but we will elect from among ourselves representatives who will then defend us and, and, and maintain laws or ideally make laws better for the people in time. Um, and so the idea of authority came from the consent of the, we, we, we gave consent to those who we selected to, to be in positions of authority. And that's where the power and the authority of law came from was the, the, the consent of the governed. Whereas in, in the systems of empire, as, as we've still got, unfortunately, in, in our Commonwealth, where I'm in Canada, it's a British Commonwealth, you know, the queen is on my money. Um, we have a different set of rules that's based on the idea that no, authority is there because you're born into the right family and you give, you give rights to people, like I said at the beginning. So that's, uh, that's a different idea. And, and that was a fight. So every time we've had a, a move towards liberty, there's been a fight by people to, who, who you know, have dignity, they, they love humanity, they, they're willing to make sacrifices, they're really even willing to die, like Gandhi, um, in order to defend the, you know, the children who are not even born yet of their worlds. And, um, and that's a good thing. So when you have that in, in our world today, if there are people who have the, the access to that level of morality, they could use their understanding of the weaknesses of, let's call the big they, the oligarchy, um, as in rule by a few, oligos and garchi. Garchi is the Greek word for control or governance, and oligos is a Greek word for, for the few. So we'll say it that way. It's a simple way of saying it. The few who rule. Um, badly, I, I would add. <laughs> um, so you could use a knowledge of their weak spots against them. And their weak spots is that they make themselves dumber in time, like a parasite that can only kill a host. You know, when a parasite gets on a host, it needs the host to stay alive for the parasite to keep on, you know, uh, surviving it as well. But if the, if the parasite is too greedy and ends up sucking all the blood from the host, the host dies, what happens to the parasite? The parasite does not do well either. And they're that, that's the problem of, of, of empire. All right. I don't know if that was okay. All right. Yeah. 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 Excellent. Well, thanks for your questions. Yeah. Me and Matthew are going to carry on with this line of questioning and uh, get into this. So, bye. Ciao. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, mate. Um, is that the first time you tried to explain all of that to an 11 year old? Yeah. No, no, I did. I did something similar once before uh, at a family event. But uh, anyway, yeah, that was fine. <laughs> <laughs> this brings us uh, nicely to your book. Excellent, by the way. Uh, and if anybody um, listening wants to check it out, Clash of Two Americas, The Unfinished Symphony. Uh, I've been through volume one. I don't know how many. How many have you released? Three. Right. So there's another two volumes for me to, to, to fly through. But let, let's let's pick up here on this, um, this idea of the uh, American Revolution. And this is what your book is all about, um, The Clash of Two Americas. And, and for those American friends of mine across the pond that each 4th of July comes around, I 
get the barrage of abuse from people such as, and I'll shout them out because you know you're listening, Pubby and, and Greg Zarge. They come across Twitter like, uh, yeah, stick it to you fuckers over that side of the pond, stay out of our territory and all of this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, they have their one day. What you uh, attest to in your book and what you're talking about is um, that's not really ever happened. There's still a very strong Anglican rule uh, within the uh, the highest uh, of realms uh, within America and uh, and how Canada was playing a role into that as well. So are they truly living under uh, a revolutionized America or as you have written about, would you like to educate them on um, what's actually gone on since? Mm, that's a good, a good starting question. Um, in, in my book, I, I sort of used as, as a theme the idea that, uh, that um, the United States is more than you thought it was, but less than it was meant to be as a way to, I think, I, I like that configuration of words because it gets across, like most, most people I know either despise America for being an empire and always having been an empire birthed on hip hypocrisy, greed, corruption that celebrated the words like freedom, but never really act, walk the walk, you know, always being a slave society of white slave owners, suppressing blacks and women. And that's something we're getting even more, more vigorously now from the, the 1619 project from the New York times and other critical race or critical theory, um, new filters to review our history from the standpoint of the, the concept that only exploitative, racist, dead white European males um, made everything happen in history for their own benefit of their master class. So there's everything is hypocrisy. There's nothing that can be learned that is useful or good from that type of approach to history. It's all crap. And it would actually be good for the US to be dissolved in civil war or other things, if you take on that perspective. Um, the other extreme I tend to encounter are those who think the US is just the exceptional nation uh, that can do no wrong, the best of the best. And if they're the ones in charge of the world, then that's the way, that's because they're the best. And that's an idiotic approach to patriotism. Um, so I don't think you can really be functional if you don't appreciate like you can't really understand much about what's shaping our current world if you don't appreciate the good and the exceptional singularity of the experience of 1776 and what shaped the last 250 years the contours of history um, in terms of the good that the U.S. has done while at the same time you can't be a patriot unless you really come to terms with the evil that has been done from since like the first years of America's birth as a new as a new country, there there was always something evil that had remained within the heart of the USA, and um, ran roughshod both over its own people, over natives, over blacks, over white people, over everybody, and in internationally has done a lot of damage. The thing I try to do is to get across what is the character of this thing, which is why I call this the clash of the two Americas. Getting across that America has been sort of at war with itself. You can't understand what Trump was. Uh, where did what was the process that that he tapped into such that that could happen when obviously all of the powers that be in 2016 certainly wanted Hillary Clinton to be the the victor in that battle. So why didn't that um, planned outcome work? What about JFK? What about, you know, 
his murder or the murder of his brother or Martin Luther King. Um, what about Harding, you know, the, the president who died in 2000, uh, 19, 1924? Or what about FDR, who there was never an autopsy, but it's quite certain that he was poisoned um, while he was still a president um, in 1945 before a lot of the plans that he had put into motion were able to uh, be born. You know, the, there was a whole idea of a new world of cooperation based on US-China-Russia uh, friendship, which was sabotaged with FDR's murder. The takeover by the, by the deep state. So this thing called deep state, it goes back a long way. It's not a new phenomenon. And what I tried to do going back through the murder of all the presidents, going back to McKinley, Garfield, Lincoln, uh, Zachary Taylor, uh, William Harrison, um, going all the way back to uh, the, the starting days, this, this deep state structure within the USA has always been um, represented by loyalists, empire loyalists who stay behind, like kind of like we had the Nazi or the, the fascist Italian stay behinds in Operation Gladio after World War II, who were absorbed by... MI6 and CIA operations to carry out this, the Cold War um, against communism. These were all like the hardcore fascists who were repositioned back into positions of power in Germany and in Italy, all over the world. And they carried out terrorist acts against the people as part of everything justified against the war against uh, communism. That was the same sort of thing. There were stay behind. Some of, some of the loyalists left and created English-speaking Canada. That's why we still have a monarchy in the Americas. Other ones remain behind and they pass themselves off on the surface as being patriotic. People like Aaron Burr, for example, who founded uh, Wall Street with the Bank of Manhattan using money he stole that was supposed to be for a water project in 1798 and, uh, and turned it into a, a private speculative bank, which became essentially a, a city of London branch inside of the heart of America that has become a power unto itself, which oversaw the murder of every great president who died while in office by bullet or by poisoning and turned the U.S. increasingly in from being a nation that was supposed to be a city on the hill, a representative for other nations to learn from and to be inspired by, um, as it was intended, to being a, an Anglo-American sort of suppressive Pax Americana, which, again, that goes back to the 19th century perversion of manifest destiny, the idea of, you know, you know, stripping the, the land of its owners who are like Cherokees who are put on trails of tears, thousands murdered while their, their former lands were given over to slave owners who would control now cotton plantations that would be then sent to textile manufacturers in Britain, which became at the heart of another aspect of the, the civil war in the, the deep state, which still exists. And the, 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 res, the reservation system, which Andrew Jackson created while conducting genocide against the Cherokees, was a system of creating these little concentration camps all over the United States where the, the First Nations peoples were told that's where you, you are allowed to be and will give you some monetary advantages to living in these little accepted zones, but you'll have no say over your destiny. You'll have no economic opportunities. We'll give you alcohol, maybe some casinos you can manage and nothing really else. And, uh, and that became a system of, that endures again, exploitatively to this day and, and Again, so there's these two Americas. There's a really beautiful, good thing that should be protected and revived, I believe, and can be revived even now at this late stage of rot. And then you've got this other evil thing, which is, uh, it's not even British, you know, and I, it's not Anglican. It's, it's, it's a, it is this parasite. Britain had their own takeover of their own deep state back in 1688. 
Mm-hmm. It had been an, a, already ongoing for many years before 1688, but that was really the big moment of takeover with the establishment of the Bank of England and the glorious revolution that saw the oligarchy really consolidate its power in Britain that turned Britain from being a genuine, you know, Thomas More, Erasmian type of spirited nation into becoming increasingly a, um, an empire. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was its own thing. So, so it's not the, even British. The, the British are also victims of the same parasite, you know? The, the, the same parasites, which are uh, like this, um, this idea of the deep state or um, oligarchy, banking oligarchy, which you might call it, the, these, these people that um, have this idea of, of power. Uh, the yeah. Technocrats, maybe? Like, is that kind of a word that we would be associating it with today? Or is that kind of a different order? And mm-hmm. I don't like the word. I like, I mean, you could say eugenicists. I, I like Malthusian. Yeah. Um, because you, I've, you, there are examples of technocrats means rule by technicians. Now, okay, that's generally bad. But, you know, if you're, if you're, let's say somebody who is, who sees a science of uh, governance uh, as a science, and you really care about humans, you could do technically things. And there's cases where good has been done by those who have, who have used the, the machinery of government in order to advance and improve the quality of life of people. Now, of course, that can easily be abused. It's a very, you don't necessarily want to have a technocratic <laughs> government, but I, I like because I could find more exceptions to that term, I prefer something like, again, eugenicist or Malthusian or transhumanist, because it's more like, I don't know of any good, there's no good examples I could find anywhere in history of Malthusians, transhumanists, eugenicists who do good ever. <laughs> it's mm. kind of rooted in an anti, or a religion of anti-humanism and it's more universal. So that's how I, I prefer that one. Yeah, that is such a deep rabbit hole. Um, I've had conversations about this uh, with with another uh, guest on this show when he kind of opened my eyes up to uh, Malthus and uh, eugenics and and how it's uh, you know pushed on down through through the people onto the people to socially engineer um, outcomes and what's been yeah. uh, going on obviously the last few years uh, with COVID with lockdowns um, you know huge social engineering eugenics uh, at play and what people don't understand as well um i don't think is the amount of eugenics that goes um it's rife through the education system from you know taking kids away from their families from the ages of over three or five and then going through that whole sorting order and the uh the idea of socially engineering you know collectivism basically uh destroying the individual mind um Do you want to rip yeah. on that before we move on to the next thing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, kids are really being put through a lot. And I think you're, you're right to call it um, a eugenics um, orientation for a variety of reasons. It's not literally that they're learning eugenics in the conventional sense of the science of population control, but it's taken on um, a new costume, but it really is the same dark soul that it ever was. And when kids are taught, even before they develop critical thinking skills, that, you know, all human activity on earth is destructive and can do no good. And that all human beings are, are sort of like a cancer, a a multiplying cancer cell in a host, Earth Mother Gaia. I mean, kids are are put through this ringer very early on to believe that human beings are really a cancer. And what do you do with a cancer? If you want to save the host, well, you got to kill the cancer. Um, so, and 
and what's what makes this really insidious is just like in the case of those who are getting indoctrinated by German eugenics uh, theories, and which were really British. If you if you look at Galton, um, Herbert Spencer's expression of the same sort of thing, but with a more hands-off approach, but ultimately a lot of the same Darwinian underlying um, axioms um, of the weeding out of the unfit, you know, by the the superior Uber mentioned, the, the more than fit, the more than human will be the, the new uh, governing strata which must be the case according to their theories because of the forces of evolution, the rule of the, the more fit over the least fit in a struggle for survival in a world of diminishing returns. That's already a very Malthusian idea. Um, you know, that, that all we have is tension caused by scarcity and that tension gives rise to creative impulses. In the case of the Darwinians, it's a random mutation function, which occasionally will produce a bigger claw. If, you know, like the rolling of a dice will somehow happen, you know, you'll get, you know, uh, only sixes 800 billion times in a row and you'll get lucky and you'll get a bigger claw that gives you the edge to, to, to beat out your competitors and have more sex, have more food while your competitors go extinct. And that new trait then carries on in such and such, right? And gradualism is, is part of the key to that theory. Um, if you extend that to human society's organization, yeah, it, it, you sort of need a fascist super state above nations to manage the diminishing returns, manage the, uh, the, 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 um, who gets what, who, which useless eaters get to stay alive, which ones don't, um, according to, and this is where transhumanism comes in as a, as a neo-eugenics, uh, philosophy in the fifties and really has taken on a, a very ugly character today in our education system. Um, that, you know, AI computers will eventually are, are on the verge of replacing human beings and making us obsolete. That's, that's about, as far as the theory goes and that self-learning machines and we're, it's fed to us in, in, in film, in, uh, in our mm -hmm. popular culture to sort of condition our minds to think that, yeah, hu human thinking and machine thinking are the same qualitative thing. The difference being that because machines can do it quantitatively faster, they will thus supersede us, unless, you know, people like Elon Musk have their solutions like, oh, we can merge with them and then stay kind of relevant a little bit longer before eventually going extinct or uploading our digitizing our, our souls. You know, these are hyper materialists like Ray Kurzweil thinks that, you know, you can take a little speck of DNA and, and somehow reconstruct somebody's whole soul so his, he can bring back his dead father back to life. And, you know, like it's kind of pathetic. Um, but they're all really afraid of their mortality. They, they haven't come to terms with the fact of mortality, I think is a big thing. These, these, those who are promoting this sort of thing. And they're also feeding self-flattering their own egos in a very vicious way to perceive that they and their class are superior as overlords to the, those born into slave families, um, who are destined to be ruled by the more fit. So again, it's a, it's a, it's a religion of arrogance, of pride, um, of pseudoscience. And the reality is that the human mind, it might process quantitatively slower calculations than a computer, but, and, you know, in that sense, a computer can be superior in a game of chess to uh, human humans and a variety of other linear activities, but it can't make a better game of chess. It's still bounded by what the programmers put into the machine. And so it can learn within those limits of what the programmer puts in. Human beings, we do the deductive and inductive thinking, and that's fine. Computers do that too. But we have the additional quality of inspiration, virtue, dignity, creativity. We can leap beyond the, the closed system when we're in that sort of spirit 
when we, when, you know, some people call it the zone, you just, you're in it yep. and it has a variety of expressions. Um, computers can't do that, nor will they ever do that. They're, they're linear systems by, by definition of what they are. So in our school system, normally that kids would be psycho-spiritually inoculated from that garbage that, that computers will replace them. And we're just viruses who can do no good um, to nature. Normally that inoculation, that's the only inoculation I support that it comes from <laughs> knowledge and discovery that your, your, your soul and mind are beautifully good things. Cause you're making discoveries with a loving teacher who is learning, who's helping you learn to ask the right questions, not giving you the answers, not punishing you for not having the right answers. You know, so you, you make the kids excited about figuring things out on their own and you guide them as much as you can, but let them make mistakes. And that would be something that if a kid gets that sense enough time, they would not accept the idea that human beings are overpopulated or that we cannot green deserts or we cannot make new resources or discover new things or green even another planet if we think long, you know, long term in the future. There's no reason why kids would not would accept those things. Um, but ne again, nihilism. as you said, genetics. Yeah, exactly. And nihilism is rife amongst um, you know kids today. It, it's really sick, uh, and not only um, transhumanism, but now we have this this seem well. It seems like a, a raging agenda to me. Uh, transgenderism flying through the the schools, university downwards. It seems to have been pushed, uh, and it's um, it's really unbelievable to see, uh, and really sick actually to see um you know the damage this is doing to to young minds that if they had not been exposed right, to these yeah. um indoctrination camps for want of a better word uh institutions um you know they would be free open and um able to express themselves find themselves be creative think critically and yeah. um you know have a love of learning no less god forbid yeah. You know, it's, um, yeah. What, what <laughs> a utopia. World. <laughs> yeah. And it's so accessible too. Like, you know, I, I mean, it, people are, it's, 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 it's so separated from the world that we live in, like an actual school system that, that cultivates a love of learning that we think of it as utopic, utopic, but the, it's, it's, There's the, red flag it's the most right natural organic thing. Yeah. I mean, that's why, Anybody listening to your show right now, are, they, 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 their flame has already been turned on and they're, they're pursuing things off the beaten path because they, want, they love truth. They've learned that they can make discoveries if they think in a, in a, in a, in a certain type of, of free way and, uh, and, or, and smell bullshit in <laughs> you know, commonly held opinions that are popular delusions. Um, as soon as you got that sense that most of what we think we've been told that is popular is crap to enslave us. As soon as you have that, that, that sense that most of that is bullshit and you have a certain sense of what real healthy mind work is, you want more of it. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a type of food that you cannot be too full of, you know, you, and, and so it, imagine like a school system institutionally uh, tapping into that quality and awakening that fire. And, and that is something which I think has been the fight over thousands of years is creating durable institutions that could produce sovereign citizens capable of self-government because you can only have a nation state if the individuals within your nation are able to tap into their own sovereign power um, to the degree that they can't, their subjects like we have in most British imperial parts of the world is not 
citizens, we have subjects. A subject is somebody who wants to be ruled, who doesn't mm -hmm. want to think about big things. Hobbits. And, you know, I, I should say yeah, hobbits saved the world in this. So that's a limited, that's a limited <laughs> uh, imagery. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, but all that to say, yeah, that, that is really it. And I think there's a homeschooling renaissance happening right now around the world. I mean, that's the one good thing that the last couple of years has done for humanity is, is really created a situation where people have been pushed beyond the limit of the red lines have been crossed and they're extracting their kids from these brainwashing facilities and learning how to uh, work with other communities of like-minded uh, parents to create conditions where the kids get access to a real education. And that's good. And it would not surprise anybody listening to know that uh, the deep state, the usual names were behind, especially in the US, were behind the infiltration of the education system uh, when it was um, imported from Prussia in the late 1800s. And the usual backers of said education system, would you'd find Rockefeller, Carnegie, Morgan uh, behind that, um, along with uh, Ford and one other, I cannot remember the other right now, but this is, you know, highly relevantly Excellent. documented by John Taylor Gatto, um, hmm. if anybody wants to go and check out his work. Um, and that's, that's what we have been led to today. But let's take this back to... Um, you listed out a bunch of presidents there that uh, have been either assassinated or maybe assassinated. And there's obviously been failed attempts as well throughout history. Uh, obviously, these assassinations, I love the fact they always get put on the people. Uh, it's just so retarded. It's like, guys, come on. Like, yeah. And just recently, I mean, are we back in assassination season? I mean, you know, with the Japanese uh, assassination of um, of Abe, did you look into that at all? A little bit. And I don't have a full, I, I think more information still has to come out because I don't have a full picture. And part of me wants to just hold back and wait to see what Japan, Japan actually does. Um, I always had, up until the assassination, I, I typically had a pretty negative view of Abe um, based on my reading of what he had done um, to promote the idea that the Japanese fascist colluded that carried out mass genocide in China during World War II were actually not to blame. They were the good guys. You know, so there's this whole movement in China, just like there is in Ukraine, to sort of glorify Nazi collaborators and um, and also remilitarize. So like changing of the constitution of, of Japan to permit for, for the first time a war in defense of allies. Um, that was a, a bad deal, considering that there's an entire U.S. military buildup around China and Taiwan is a U.S. puppet colony since the uh, 2014, you know, NED-funded Taiwan Revolution. Um, you know, it was called the, uh, the Sunflower Revolution that installed the current puppet regime. So Taiwan has now been made an official ally of Japan at the same time that Japan goes and changes its constitution, which already, I mean, Japan already has 50,000 plus U.S. troops and vast military facilities that have never gone away, that are still there, um, ready to, uh, you know, expand the NATO of the Pacific, which Japan also was supposed to be a member of. Now, at the same time, as I'm saying all of that, um, th that was the negative view I had of Abe. Then after he got killed, I was presented arguments and, and solid ones that, that persuaded me that he was playing a bit of a, he might've been playing a bit of a sophisticated double game behind the scenes where, you know, I, I hadn't really considered the strategic importance of his having met Putin like 28 times 
while he was prime minister. Um, and he had done a lot of work, especially on Russia's far east, to, um, to extend Japanese economic interests in Russian eastern development, Siberia, Arctic development, which also came in conjunction with India, China, other countries who are being used by Western imperialists to fight each other over territorial disputes. But there's actually points of strong common interest on mutual win-win economic development on developing vast infrastructure corridors, new cities, new mining interests, uh, natural gas, you know, things like uh, power of Siberia one and two, other things that are, uh, that Japanese firms were uh, expanded massively, again, in harmony with China, Chinese firms and, and Indian firms and others. So there's this whole other thing, um, which implies to me that perhaps I'm open now to the possibility that he was playing a positive role overall within a very controlled environment that Japanese politicians have to live in. I mean, there's a, the whole system. In, it's, a, it's a U.S. military industrial colony, and it always has been since we bombed the hell out of them in, in 1945. Um, so, yeah, again, he might have been doing something good. I'm open to that. And, uh, and as far as what it was that were the mechanisms specifically in terms of the, uh, the killing of him using a, a figure who's somehow affiliated with the Unification Church of Sun Myung Moon, the late uh, former head of the, the Moonies, not too sure. There's a lot of question marks for me. I don't know with if you hand, have any. Uh... A handmade gun. Yeah. It, yeah. Was, uh, it was a citizen, a citizen with a handmade gun. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Okay. Nice one. Yeah. And again, you look at the video footage and it's just, there's, it smells of fakery, you know, that nobody really moved even after he got shot. There, there's a lot of just rigidity, fakery, and what we've been shown. I, yeah, something smells fishy, of course. Now, this is a Bitcoin podcast, so let's let's pick a uh, a president that um, we put a lot of light on, um, and let's do a, like a lead up to his inauguration as well. I've heard you talk about um, FDR uh, before on on Kvan show when you were um, you know ripping with him on um, mm. FDR, and uh, you had uh, quite a, a positive view of uh, of him because you felt as though he was pushing back against um, the, the deep state, the they. Um, yeah. whereas us Bitcoiners, yeah. whereas us Bitcoiners have a, a very, um, opposing view on, uh, on, on what he did once, uh, once he was elected, but, uh, let, let's, let's set it up. Let's, let's go through the twenties first. Um, obviously catastrophic times in the U S uh, we've, yeah. um, we've gone straight into, um, uh, massive depression. That's, Do you want a, to, that's um, a understatement. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Uh, by the way, again, um, that was controlled, right? Um, the, oh, yeah. the roaring twenties controlled by the, uh, the banking oligarchy, the, um, the, the wall street elite, um, with the mechanism of, I'll let you explain it, but basically the kind of thing we had leading up to 2008, when people were getting hundred percent mortgage, um, you know, for, uh, yeah. for their home, what were people getting uh, back in those days? It's like 90%. Um, leverage is that right in the stock market? Uh, well, I know that the broker, but by by 1928, I know the broker call loans had uh, been had a something like an eight times. They're they're they were eight times overvalued. They they represented eight times more than the entire stock market was worth um, right. by 1928, and and that rate of growth. Uh, was hyperbolic. Uh, it, I mean, the broker call loans really only started with the, the murder of, and I'll say murder, I'll just say it, of uh, President Harding. 
there was already like under Andrew Mellon, who was the finance minister of, uh, of the Treasury Secretary of the United States. Um, of Mellon Bank. Mellon, um? Of Mellon Bank, that family? The, that, that family, family? That family yeah okay. he's a eastern establishment boston brahmin type of oligarchical family always always loyal to the the city of london inner echelons always along with the jp morgan trust he was part of that whole network and so he was the key in in creating the situation of the roaring 20s of, of uh deregulating the, the system getting rid of protectionism getting rid of everything that uh basically allowed u.s industry and, and agriculture to uh grow um which it always was under protectionism and, and that type of, you know, um, what was called then the American system. People understood it in those terms better than they do today. And so when Harding died, that really took off. So Mellon became under under the puppet Coolidge and Coolidge was just a, a trauma case, psychologically handicapped uh, puppet who himself was part of the J.P. Morgan preferred clients list of insider traders um, okay. who made a fortune off of insider gambling. And how and was so Harding the bidding of just continuously? How was huh? Harding killed? Sorry. Harding died by eating oysters. Um, right. Yeah, on a train. He died okay. by eating oysters. An oyster killed him. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> At a time when, you know, it was a vicious battle. You, the context is so important because that was a moment when the League of Nations had just been created by Wo Woodrow Wilson, who had, you know, again, Woodrow Wilson is a morally compromised uh, Princeton idiot who had pretty much advanced dementia by that time. He was not even a, a player in much of anything. He was a, a useful little puppet, kind of like a Biden character by that point. Hyper racist as well, like really re-empowered re the entire KKK apparatus inside of the United States under his uh, his watch. And um, he signed in the Federal Reserve Act. Yeah, and he signed that in too. Yeah, exactly. He was a complete idiot puppet. I don't think he, he, he there's there's words of regret that he, he spoke later on, but it's like, yeah. <laughs> Good job. Okay, now you you just you did it and you regret it. Okay, thanks. Good job. Um, all that to say, um, the League of Nations was part of this larger, broader New World Order. It's not like the New World Order is a new thing. You know, it goes back a long time, and it's not like it it uh, wasn't. So it wasn't. It's not like it wasn't tried before. It was tried before, and the the nineteen nineteen solution to the problem of wars was uh, again world government. Get rid of national sovereignty move the powers of the sovereign nation to a supranational body of mostly unelected bankers um, that would then dictate the terms of peace and war, banking protocols, everything would be determined straight from a unipolar upper level management all the way down. And every nation would have to sign on to things like the, uh, the League of Nations Covenant, which reads very much like the NATO um, the, the NATO treaties of uh, the late forties, very similar collective security, other stuff. Um, but it's essentially world government under, and that was under the control or direction of mostly um, the round table movement. People like Leo Amory, uh, Lord Milner, you know, the, the people who had really been put into a position of managing a reorganization of the British empire to better subdue and destroy the spread of uh, national economics that had been spreading, especially after Lincoln's victory in the in the Civil War, which I go through in, in volume one of the book. And, you know, this policy of national development, developing your interior instead of just being addicted to cheap exports of raw materials on by ports that would be controlled then by maritime monopolies over the shipping routes of the world. So that's how the British Empire, this tiny island, was able to maintain itself 
over the the entire you know 25 percent of the world's surface land area was british controlled directly british empire territory and it was by keeping everybody addicted to uh maritime trading so britain just had to control like 13 choke points and they were able to control the world the idea of nations developing their interior by developing things like rail transcontinental rail industrial corridors using protectionism to protect themselves from from dumping of cheap goods which is another way that Britain was able to undercut and destroy whether India or the, the, the Americas from having their own indigenous manufacturing was through, you know, flood their goods. So you, you make it impossible for local agriculture or, or uh, manufacturers to produce anything because it's like people will, will buy, you know, something for 50 cents before buying it for a dollar. So protection of, protectionism was a vital component of that fight. It doesn't mean that protectionism is intrinsically a good thing, but when you're doing battle with a beast, <laughs> you need it. Um, so that's what Harding was generally a, a proponent of. And, and he was also a supporter of uh, bilateral treaties with Austria, with Russia, with uh, other countries. He didn't want to go through a middleman in Brussels or London to tell him or the United States how to do business with another country. So he, he just completely sabotaged all of those mechanisms. And in his death allowed for um, a, a reconsolidation of power by this, this foreign controlled deep state inside of the United States. And that was, again, the setting up of the, the, the collapse of, the, of 1929. And, you know, that was, I think all of your viewers probably know this. This is common knowledge that there was a, or common knowledge within the, the, the community of people who, who look for such things. Um, there was a day where there was a, a coordinated broker call loan called in, which triggered nobly that collapse and everybody who was on the preferred clients list of, of jp morgan were able to sell short you know they 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 were able to then uh buy up for pennies on the dollar things that had gone bankrupt like whole industrial sectors real estate agriculture had had defaulted farmers were committing suicide i mean the home foreclosures were astounding 25 percent unemployment at least uh, the industrial output fell by 50 percent uh from 1928 to uh, 29 to uh to 33. I mean, that's a huge loss. So you had a wealth transfer. And the mm -hmm. irony of this whole thing was that those who controlled the physical production didn't want to use their control of, of former machine tool sectors to produce wealth. You think that would be good business. If you now own these factories, you would probably want to make those factories work so that you can make more money. But it's like, no, they actually were sh consciously shutting down consistently. You could, you could look at the indices of the shutdown of agriculture and industrial production throughout the entire time. So there's an artificial scarcity, an artificial destruction of the physical viable part of the economy by those who were at the same time supporting the rise of the economic miracle solution to all of your problems that will put bread on your table and give you a job in a work camp uh, of fascism, which took on different expressions, whether it was in you know, Sir Oswald Mosley's United uh, British Union of Fascists that was on the rise or the, uh, the Nazi American rallies in Madison Square Garden, which saw the rise of Nazi parties, including the American Legion, was run by a bunch of pro-fascists. The, the, the Legionnaires uh, who fought World War I were completely taken over and managed by fascists who were setting up a U.S. military fascist army to take full control and do what they had just done in Hitler, in, in, in Germany, with the, with the, uh, the ouster of von Schleicher, um, who had been chancellor for like a second, you know, in, in 1932. And he was an anti-fascist. He really wanted a, a proper 
reorganization of the the German banking system around cooperation with Russia with a, a strong industrial development policy. Um, very, very similar to the industrial policy of the New Deal um, is what Schleicher was putting into motion in Germany. And when uh, Hitler was appointed in February of 1933 and Schleicher was ousted, it, it was one more year before Schleicher was killed under the, the Night of the Long Knives. Um, that whole thing became, again, we're going to give you work. We're going to make the German economy run well. You know, Mussolini, same thing. Trains will run on time. The reality was that these were all enforcers for a policy that was coming down from the banks of Wall Street, the banks of London, the Bank of England, like Montague Norman, who was shaping Kjallmarschacht in the Nazi economic policy. Um, Franco was doing something very similar where, and in, it took on different flavors, but ultimately it was, it was a, a corporate controlled system above nation states that would use their strongman to enforce policies mm -hmm. of eugenics, controlled uh, the controlling of the useless eaters or sterilization of the unfit. And ultimately, a program of global government um, on behalf of that that thing. So this is where the story of Roosevelt, because I always had a very negative idea of Roosevelt for many years, and it was only when I began to review my my history from this new standpoint that I I better I changed the facts that I walked into forced me to reevaluate my negative view of Roosevelt because the question became, well, why didn't it work? Like, why did they need to? Um, have Smedley Butler deploy himself as a, you know, a, a general conducting a fascist coup when Smedley Butler, you know, everyone knows the story of, of General Butler, right? Go ahead. You know, Smedley Butler. Let's fill us in because I, I'm not 100% sure. So please. Okay. Uh, he was the U.S. general, the, the most decorated uh, general in, in history to this day. Um, and he was a leader of the, he was a, a leading a, admired um, figure within the, uh, the Legion. And you had 500,000 World War I veterans who had not received their bonus pay. Um, for five years, there, there had been strikes. That, they couldn't get, get the money. The money didn't exist. The Great Depression was, a, you know, it was, again, shock therapy. Um, so he was recruited by um, a few figures representing the Morgan interests to run a banker's coup to basically use him and, and channel the 500,000 strikers in Washington to take over the White House, kill Roosevelt, install him as the puppet dictator. And he played along for a number of months, taking names. And then he went to Congress, blew the whistle, and then he went to the media. And you could see even on, on YouTube. I actually, I'm, I'm working with a filmmaker right now. We're about to, to finish this 20-minute uh, video on the story of Smedley Buck, Butler and this banker's coup. Um, he blew the whistle and, and basically spelled everything out. Um, and you could listen to him in his own words go through this, this thing. And again, my, my documentary is going to be out this week. Um, so it's like, why did they need to do that if Roosevelt was totally on their side? Why, why also did uh, they try to kill, like Roosevelt survived an assassination attempt by a, a, an Italian Freemason named uh, Giuseppe Zangara in February, uh, the same period that uh, Schleicher was being ousted in Germany. Um, they, you know, this guy took five shots at Roosevelt and a woman in the audience hit his arm. He ended up killing the mayor of Chicago, uh, Cermak. So it's like, why did they try so hard to do that? And also, why did the Bankers Conference of 1933 fail? Because in solving the Great Depression, I, I, I do uh, three chapters in my volume two of the uh, Clash of the Two Americas on the, uh, the second. So the first attempt at a new world order under the League of Nations in 1919 failed, mostly because of Harding and also some, some people in Ireland and Canada. Um, the second attempt was in 1933. 
where there was a, the, the London Bankers Conference. You heard about the, the London Bankers Conference? From your book, yeah. Okay, so that was, again, 65 nations brought together in London under the Bank of England and the Bank of International Settlements. The king presided over it um, to create a new global economic system that would be the, the solution to the Great Depression. That's, that, uh, that system was essentially controlled entirely by bankers with no elected officials in playing any, any significant role. And uh, that was supposed to be the, the world government. They wouldn't have, technically, they might not have even needed World War II. If, if nations had just submitted to that at that time, they wouldn't have needed to have World War II. Um, it wouldn't have been necessary. But it didn't work. And it didn't work because Franklin Roosevelt had pulled out all of the delegations and sabotaged the conference. And at the same time as he sabotages this world government conference, which again, saved the world, which was when I read that, when I, when I learned that, I, my, my, that's where my opinion really started changing on Roosevelt and, and what role he was playing. Um, he was at the same time doing war with these same Wall Street bankers that had created the Great Depression. So he broke up the banks under Glass-Steagall. He re-empowered the PCOR Commission to put literally hundreds of Wall Street bankers in prison, hundreds. J.P. Morgan Jr. was brought to trial under um, subpoenas that were granted to PCORA to, uh, to basically expose how these guys were actually initiators of the Great Depression. And a lot of these same guys were putting, pouring all of their money into the rise of fascism. That's why Mussolini was like Times Man of the Year like eight times, you know? So was Hitler. Um, but they really wanted fascism as the world government solution. So Roosevelt sabotaged so many things. And then the third thing I would say is the, the New Deal itself. Like when you actually don't look at the, the purely financial side of the New Deal, but if you look at what was created the, in terms of the, the Tennessee Valley Authority, the rural electrification projects, the hundreds of dams, big and small, water diver, diversion policies, electrification, mass education, Big and small projects, right? The Four Corners, uh, you know, the, the Columbia River Treaty projects, the St. Lawrence Seaway projects, the, the, the ports, the new cities, um, hundreds, literally, like something like 800 uh, libraries and thousands of schools, um, the, the reversal of the foreclosures on farms and homes, the, the, again, putting bankers in prison. But all of that was sort of a very holistic thing. And it was being sabotaged by the Federal Reserve the whole time. You had Wall Street bankers the whole time trying to cut credit on the investments into the real economy. Um, so Roosevelt was like fighting the entire 14 years. He, there was like not a single moment where he wasn't fighting or like dodging a bullet or like all of this stuff. And I think part of my disgust from Roosevelt came in hindsight over the fact that so many asshole traitors in the Democratic Party, like Obama, says, say that they like Roosevelt and they, they like the New Deal, where you get things like the Green New Deal, right? And they, they, they treat him like such a great pit figure but they created a straw man, like the figure that the, that people like Obama celebrate. It does, never existed. It, it's it, that's some Keynesian atrocity. And I mean, John Maynard Keynes hated Roosevelt. Like we're told, oh, Roosevelt was a Keynesian. No, he wasn't. No, he was never a Keynesian. He hated Keynes. Thought he was an, he, Keynes called him an economic incompetent, and Roosevelt called Keynes um, a mathematical fetishist. Um, so we've been lied to by the CFR, the roundtable movements who created these macro narratives of our own history um, over generations to paint the, to, to reframe what the hell the Great Depression was, mm -hmm. to what, what World War II was, what Roosevelt was, and none of the substance is, is there for us to explore. None of the fights, none of that. Um, 
So it's, either again, you either love Roosevelt for this, the wrong reasons or people hate him because he was like a demonic banker's boy. Um, but in, in both cases, they're both wrong. There's like a whole history, like a whole story that's being cut out of the, the narrative. Exactly. And it's trying to dig through the sand and try and find these truths, right? Because so much has happened yeah. ever since. And uh, there was always, um, you know, uh, smoke and mirrors at the time as well. And then, so I've been looking at it uh, and um, the sort of one thing, like the transfer of wealth, like, uh, like, like you said, that was engineered 1929, lend all these um, retail investors as much money as they want, just keep leveraging the system, then, you know, sell at the absolute high of the market, you get to decide, and then you rug pull everybody with uh, by calling in those loans. Uh, and then you take over the transfer of wealth, not only people's property, but people's uh, industry, businesses, land, the lot, right? Um, that's, that's what happened. Then, like you said, you create this artificial scarcity, and you kind of prolong people's misery. Uh, and then during that time, there was even a, a big shift, right, in thinking to, to even get FDR um, appointed. The, the, uh, there had to be a huge shift from the Republican to the Democratic Party, um, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Not just from the people, but from, you know, very um, uh, influential people within, within the two parties itself. But yeah. again, we know there's a, an invisible hand behind all of this. Um, yeah. And then he gets inaugurated. Um, and I'll just read one, one paragraph from his inauguration. Uh, it is to be hoped that the normal balance of executive and legislative authority may be wholly adequate to meet the unprecedented task before us. But it may be that an unprecedented demand and need for undelayed action may call for temporary departure from that normal balance of public procedure. So he's warning the people that something fucking big is coming, right? Then you have the um, uh, the um, what was it called? The Emergency Banking Act, which was yep. uh, signed in March 1933, uh, which is when he was. Um, that's right around straight after his inauguration. That was the first thing to happen. And within one month of his presidential office, he drops ex Executive Order 6102 on the people, and then basically confiscates the people's gold so whatever they had left that like gold like the, their own savings gone and uh 6102 this is why in the bitcoin space we are so clued into what he did is, is that the only reason it's, it's only that that that's one thing that we like are definitely like laser eye focused on it's like hang on a minute so the people were ordered it's oh. like in the front page of the newspapers uh and i'll read you the um uh, Executive Order 6102 required all persons to deliver on or before the 1st of May 1933 all but a small amount of gold coin, gold bullion, and gold certificates owned by them to the Federal Reserve. So if he was fighting the Federal Reserve, why then was he more than happy to sign this Executive Order 6102 to force everybody to bring their gold in to their nearest branch of the Federal Reserve to hand over their gold. Now, what happened next is that they took that gold at $20.67 per troy ounce. So you're taking in your gold, everything you've saved, family generational wealth, and they priced that at $20.67 per troy ounce. Then they um, reprice that once they've got all the gold under the Gold Reserve Act to $35 an ounce. So they completely rug pull the whole of the American people 
on their gold savings. So even if you could go back and you couldn't convert that paper money back for gold anyway, but even if you could, you were just robbed completely blind by 30 to 40% of the value of your whole savings. So when we, when we look at that and we see like the fiat monetary system as it is today, and then we think about Bitcoin being, um, you know, um, uh, you know, non-confiscatable, for example, if you're holding it, if you're in control of it, you hold your own keys. That's where we have um, this big problem with Roosevelt. And it's weird because, you know, this book, I'm sure, Carol oh, Quigley's, yeah. Yeah. yeah, right, yeah. Carol Quigley's Tragedy and Hope. I read through his whole chapter on, um, on America. And um, he, again, goes through 1929, blah, 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 like we all just discussed. But there's no mention of Executive Order 6102 in here either. And it's like, what well, this is such a huge um, kind of time in, in history. Okay. Well, I think the thing you want to look at as well is the question of uh, speculation as a weapon to destroy nations. And the question is also, if you, you could have a lot of gold as an individual, but if your food production has been destroyed, it, you can't eat your gold if that's the case, if the macro system is under the control of those who want to create scarcity by shutting down production uh, or not mean, not providing electricity grids or things like that that allow you to have electricity. It doesn't keep you, the light on at night just having the gold. So that was the thing is the macro system. There's a fight over macro systems. You don't want to just have this. I tend to, I mean, I there's a lot of the, the personal like libertarian philosophy, which I make the point that, that Keynes is a fraud, but von Hayek is also a fraud. Yep. I've von Hayek that. and Keynes themselves were lifelong friends. And von Hayek. I've read that article, working. by the way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's great. Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, so they created this fake Fabian Society controlled fight between these two different approaches to the how to solve a depression. Where Keynes was like, it's all kind of like a quasi Smith versus Marx debate, but kind of retweaked a bit for the 20th century. Where Keynes was like, it's all about the state, you know, top down, trickle down economics. You can make. Uh, not even trickle down. No, it's like top-down economics. You know, we're just going to build random projects, give people paycheck. The paycheck will let them spend money. The spending of money is going to induce a demand for like uh, industries. The industries will, will then create a demand for electricity. The demand for electricity is then going to justify the creation of infrastructure to build dams or water systems or anything else. It was it was the total inverse of how world history and the science of economy actually works. He turned everything inside out to make it because there's no qualitative differentiation between the difference of um, somebody who it's all make work, right? Like somebody in the Keynesian world could be paid to fill up a hole and uh, dig a hole. And the other person could be paid to fill up a hole. It's because they're both getting a paycheck and the paycheck is somehow going to work itself bottom up to create uh, macro, macro changes um, for the good. The, the, the von Hayek school, which really just retweet a lot of the, the British free trade uh, stuff of Adam Smith w- with a little bit more of an Austrian Habsburg quality. Cause I mean, Carl Menger was a, a retainer in the Habsburg empire, the Habsburg empire that those family units worked very closely with the British and other, you know, families of the olig- oligarchy. They were just different factions of the same thing. So they basically repackaged the idea that no, what you want to do is do nothing. The state shouldn't do anything and just maximize the liberty of the individual to, uh, purchase um, whatever they want. The act of purchasing will then somehow organize, self-organize and create these macro systems where good will happen. 
again, that nothing has ever been built that way. There's always that that doesn't work. Um, what people like um, Roosevelt was doing, or Lincoln was doing, or McKinley was doing, or Harding was doing, or uh, if you look at uh, the Meiji Restoration, the better the Mitsubishi family in in Japan, or Alexander II and III were doing in Russia, or or anybody who actually creates liberty and, and economic progress from the oligarchy is doing something which is not those two things. Um, and part of the way that the empire has always run its or conducted its empire is through speculating, keeping nations stuck on the belief that the, the actual shiny thing gives you value, creates, creates value. And by having that type of idea of worshiping the thing, they're able to then have control over the speculative markets that term, determine the price of the thing. And the lack of ability to have stability when you have everybody speculating on the, the, the price of a commodity, whether it's oil in our modern age, which is how the, you know, the, the destruction of long-term thinking was created was by getting everybody in our, in since 73 to be addicted to the petrodollar. The, 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 the barrel of oil is not connected to the value of what that oil is doing in the real world. It's connected just to what the spot market and futures market speculators uh, think the value is going to be because they don't care about the oil. It could be worth, you know, three, three dollars to actually like process it, put it in a barrel, it's three dollars, but it's selling for like 120. Why? Because speculators, it's not even, it's not even demand or supply. Um, so that was something that was done throughout the 19th century on, on gold as well, on silver too, at different times um, to keep the U.S., the U.S. in a state where it didn't have the stability to plan long-term projects, because if you're going to build anything that has real value, you can't do it in like we're told in business today uh, that if you can't just if you can't prove a monetary payback within three years, it's not worth doing. And that's why we stopped building big projects like 40 years ago, because these things take you know seven to to 20 year orientations that requires stability. So part of it, you want to look at well, what was the the role of international speculators on the price fluctuations of gold. That's one thing you want to look at at the 1920s. The other thing you also want to look at in terms of the Federal Reserve, like Roosevelt was fighting primarily, his first fight was for a national bank. Mm -hmm. um, he called it a, a, a national infrastructure bank. He couldn't get the support in Congress or Senate. So that, you know, it advanced only so far. So the, the second thing he did instead, he couldn't get it that way. And so what he did is he forced on the one hand after the Pecor commission um, or during the Pecor commissions it had begun. And after the, the glass steagle was able to break up the banks and, you know, separating the speculative from the, the commercial clean part of the banking system saying that, you know, if you're a speculator and you gambled and we're not going to bail you out, like, like uh, Hoover was doing, because Hoover was basically just bailing out the banks kind of like we've been doing for, for 13 years in the, in the West. So he said, basically, you're going to take your losses and you're going to, if you're insolvent, you're insolvent. That, that's your problem. We'll, we'll have an insurance and protect the clean part of the banking system. And we're going to do audits. That's what the bank holiday was all about to figure out which banks are solvent. You know, 75% of the banks were uh, reorganized under bankruptcy receivership, chapter 11. And under new management, they were then um, induced to be a part of a new type of game that involved not uh, speculating, but rather emitting long-term loans to productive enterprises that started, I mean, you could look at the metrics of the rebuilding of small and medium enterprises that were given contracts, often from the government, often from um, another type of corporation that was not that was partially government, um, to build things like the Tennessee Valley Authority, I mean, or other things. I mean, there's so many things. Um, and that created a real stimulation of the private sector. Um, so, 
to get the Federal Reserve to start behaving for the first time in three decades a little bit, he had to put his own guy in. He forced the installation of Mariner Eccles, who was an industrialist, an anti-depopulationist, um, who had been a fighter against the League of Nations, against the, and he, he forced that guy onto the Federal Reserve. Largely, the, the reason why Roosevelt had that power was because the core commissions were able to expose for the American population the extent and scope of Wall Street's abuses. So because they had very bad press by that time, they didn't have a lot to defend themselves and Roosevelt had survived his, his assassination and he was about to survive his coup. Um, so you have that. But well, I think that the question well, of the role well, of gold... Forced, sorry, sorry. Right? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 an epiphany's just dropped when you said he forced um, a, a man in there. Or yeah, he, he bought his way. Or he bought his man in there by yeah. confiscating the people's gold. Like... The way he did. Well, again, I, I don't think you don't want to be a fetishist about the idea of owning the shiny thing, because that's the way that the oligarchy has kept us uh, screwing ourselves over for a long time. And the city of London is a center command structure of global speculation um, to keep the U.S. from developing out of the Great Depression. It kept it underwater. Um, so I, I think you want to look at reevaluate the question of the gold fight around the question of this entire global dynamic for world government and global depopulation as your primary context in mind when you're reevaluating. Because what a lot of people do is they ignore the context. They're fixated on the fetish of gold per se and personal liberty from a bottom up uh, standpoint. For, uh, yeah, for us, it's theft. We're, no, we're, we're, we're concentrated on theft, like the, the, just the, the, the outright theft of of everyone you know, was going to be assets everyone was supposed to die in the united states like the great depression was never supposed to stop and mm -hmm. they were supposed to be under a transhumanist macro eugenic mm -hmm. society of of murder that was supposed to ongo uh <laughs> <laughs> way earlier on um so there's this whole other thing like of do you have the freedom to survive to eat food like to have electricity or a job you know like when you're in the context, the, the oligarchy almost won everything. Like that game was done by 1932, 33. It was over. There was hardly, it was like 1992, you know, uh, the, the, the ejaculatory celebrations by the oligarchy celebrating openly the new world order was here finally, that, you know, because the Soviet Union finally collapsed and the game was over. 1989 to 92, that was like, I look back to that period. I'm like, how the, how did we survive? They had everything. You know, they controlled the U.S. They had NAFTA. They had the Maastricht Treaty of the Eurozone. They totally destroyed sovereignty in, in the transatlantic. They, you know, Africa was a non-player in anything at that point. Uh, China was under the full control of Zhao Ziyang, the, the George Soros agent in China. George Soros had his boy, Zhao Ziyang, as the head of the Chinese Communist Party. The most powerful posi position was a guy who co-ran a think tank with George Soros. <laughs> He brought in Alvin Toffler, Milton Friedman, the Futurist, Fourth Industrial Revolution. All of this shit was being brought in. One-child policy, Club of Rome mathematical models shaping the balkanization of, of China into a, a Reaganomic sort of free market state of, of balkanization, just like they were doing in Russia with Perestroika and Glasnost. Everything was on there. All chips were on their side. How the hell did we survive that? Why aren't we dead yet? You know, And it's because you have these fights. And it, you know, unfortunately, it has a lot to do with China's, um, the things that people hate about China's lack of freedom. A lot of it is because China, they fought like, like they, they used the power of the sovereign nation state 
to do forms of battle with this oligarchy that has bought us time. Um, and people don't understand that. You know, they just see the personal liberties uh, that have been abused. And there are abuses that I disagree with in China. And they see the social credit and they see the, the authoritarian uh, state. But it's like, at the same time, that's the reason why that the, the China was able to kick out George Soros forever, lifetime ban, not allowed to go back in there. Um, all of Soros's assets were purged or put in jail or escaped to New York, where they're currently working with the CIA and have been for 30 years. Um, like you got all of, that's the problem. Like wherever you have a nation state and you have a fight against a, a, an oligarchy, which is globally consolidated with its highly centralized, powerful command structure in, 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 the, in this case, the, the host is London, but it's global. Um, it's a, it's the most centralized thing. You need a power to do battle with that level of power. And the, the nation state, when it does battle, will sometimes, um, do things that are, uh, not friendly to personal liberty of the individual. That'll sometimes happen. The question is, is that the, is that the, the character of the forever state, or is that an unfortunate distasteful consequence of asymmetrical warfare, you know? And what I'm seeing is that when I look at the effects of Roosevelt's overarching fight, his enemies, the effects of the policies, beyond simply the one issue of the gold, there's this whole macro fight that also mm -hmm. plays into what I'm seeing today is an anti-Malthusian orientation that empowered nation states and the individual to have more direction over their destiny than they did before that, or as they would have had he not been victorious in those fights. And we all would have been mind slaves under a feudal oligarchy of a new dark age way back then there's there's one other thing here that yeah just kept um kind of like uh you know knocking at me glass steagall act uh was obviously uh, written in under under that time the glass owen act same glass was the federal reserve that was um put together yep. in 1913 so you had this character carter glass on both ends of this and I'm sure there were invisible hands at play behind that and behind him. And it's just very significant as well. Thomas Jefferson is a guy who did really good things in 1776. Mm -hmm. um, really good things that made a, a big difference over whether the U.S. was going to be victorious or not in that battle. And later on was also a guy who was the biggest slave owner of Virginia, abused actually his slaves, birthed some children with some, never even let them go free in his will. He, yep. while other like George Washington, at least put in his will, when I die, all my slaves go free. He didn't even have the guts to do that even to the, the woman who he impregnated. Um, and he empowered the slave power in so many ways to expand their slave institution um, after he became president in 1800. He was still better than, Andrew, uh, than Aaron Burr. Keep that in mind, like because his enemy, Alexander Hamilton, who was his political enemy, fought tooth and nail to make sure that Jefferson became president. That's a great paradox, because okay. as much as he distasted, he didn't like Jefferson's hypocrisy and lack of coherence with himself. Um, he saw that at the very least, he was not an out and out. He wouldn't willfully preside over the destruction of the United States, whereas Aaron Burr was a complete um evil agent 
like Aaron Burr was, he lived to be like for his godlike arrogance. And he even wanted to make himself emperor of the Western Union and depose Jefferson in a in a, a plot that was uh, exposed in 1807, which is why he escaped to London and lived with Jeremy Bentham, who ran the, the, the British uh, Foreign Office for five years, calling it the best time of his life when he was with, you know, opiums and hookers for five years, <laughs> you know, meeting with Castlereagh and Bentham at his manor. Um, but that was to avoid arrest for having been caught in a, in a plot to destroy the United States and reabsorb it under the British Empire. So that's why Hamilton liked Jefferson, despite the fact that Jefferson at one time did great good and at other times did great bad because he was not really coherent with himself. As most people are sort of like, we've got a, a bit of vice and virtue um, inside of ourselves. Um, things that we've done that we're not proud of, other, other things that we've done that we are proud of. I think with somebody like... Uh, that's how real politics works. I mean, I, I don't see that there's very few people who are consistently um, evil, who are, who are consistently in tune with their, and, and they don't wake up saying like, oh, I'm going to be Darth Vader today. That, that even the evil people don't think that they've got some twisted logic that justifies why what they're doing is necessary or somehow good. But there's very few who are self-aware of the role that they play for an evil effect. Um. And I think this, you know, Glass is a guy who's kind of like that. Um, even Kissinger, look right now, Kissinger, evil, genocidal, homicidal Kissinger has come out saying like, maybe we've gone too far with this whole supporting Nazis and, and pushing war with Russia thing. Maybe we should like re regroup and reconfigure what we've been doing. Um, he's actually coming out as a voice of sanity in the West, just simply because I think he's at a situation where he's he's like somebody who worships at the altar of stasis of stability. He doesn't really want his he doesn't really want nuclear war uh, to destroy his life's work, which is his life's work is a system of stasis under world government of population, you know, population control, a limited population of, of talking cows under a system of kind of like the Congress of Vienna, right, in 1815, right, restored monarchical structures of power, running a deep state international, and he wants that. But if you actually have these, these current policies go further, as they're currently doing, all of that's going to be wiped out. So you have a, an evil guy saying something which is useful. Um, that's how I, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, the, the, the problem is the, the guilty by association thing. Like sometimes bad people associate with good people doesn't mean that they're good. And good people sometimes associate with bad people doesn't mean that they're bad. And bad people will say good things doesn't mean that they're intending to do good things. And good people will say bad things, but they'll then do something good. And so like there's this danger when we use this computer, there's a computer mode of thinking um, called pattern formation thinking. When you see a pattern in one place, it means evil, new world order. Then you see a similar pattern and you're like, okay, it's similar enough that the computer will then recognize the pattern and make then a conclusion. They're the same thing. And that is not useful always. It's a useful first step, but oftentimes those patterns might look similar, but they're two different things. You know, mm -hmm. it might look like a duck, but it's not a duck. We also have this uh, kind of um, endemic problem within politicians, uh, you know, that are just useful idiots, easily manipulated. <laughs> bought off um yeah th there's always always something going on behind the scenes uh yeah. can i right. just just one thing i know you got you got maybe 10 minutes uh what do you have 
It's it's fine. I got another 15, 20. I, I've got a, my wife has an interview at uh, three. So I got to be out here in like 15 minutes. All right, cool. Um, Masons. I just picked one. Oh, yeah. Uh, secret orders. Um, you know, we could, we could probably play tennis back and forth and, you know, name as many as you like, um, you know, CFR, um, mm. trilateral commission, house mm-hmm. of Rome, you know, the list goes on masons, Masonic lodges. Uh, you know, I don't really know anything about these guys, you know, a little bit about the Fabians, Jesuit order and, and, you know, these kind of names that just keep, uh, throwing, getting thrown around. Um, what's the gig with, uh, like the Masons? The Masons are, you can't look at history without taking the Masons or secret size more generally, because the free, the, you know, the Freemasons is sort of a modern incarnation of something, which is, you know, previously it was, you had, you had Rosicrucian orders, Knights of the Golden Cross, you had, uh, you know, Knights Templar is another aspect of it, you, but you always had you have different expressions of secret societies um, that goes back a, a very long, long time in history. And I think the common character that you tend to get is from the worst expressions. Cause sometimes you'll find people who, who play a positive role in world's history are affiliated with a secret society. Mm-hmm. There's two reasons for that, um, that I can, I can identify. There might be others that I don't know about, but number one is that, the majority of people, let's say, in modern Freemasonic lodges who are affiliated with that are of lower orders. The vast majority are between first and third degrees. And uh, and there's many degrees. Like I have um, Albert Pike's Morals and Dogma, a second edition. I spent a lot of money on it. Um, and it goes up to 32 degrees. And it, it basically showcases Albert Pike's reorganization of each of the rituals for each of the 32 degrees. And supposedly once you hit 33, then you get the last chapter in, or the last book, which probably also involves a whole other nesting of degrees, even above that, I would imagine. Um, and what you're doing is you're the people who are more self-aware, who are granted more positions of responsibility in a nefarious plan are, they tend to not be in the lower rungs. The lower rungs are just kind of good people. They, you know, they, 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 there's a certain lower order narrative provided that you're continuing a positive tradition that goes back to Egypt, to the building of the great pyramids and there are some good things that have been done um, historically um, in terms of engineering and scientific discoveries that have been made, sometimes had to, had to have been kept secret because it's like you've got enemies, you know, empires against empires and a lot of counterintelligence operations within courts that would like to take state secrets and scientific secrets, engineering secrets, and use against your victims or your, your, your enemies. So a lot of this stuff has to be, by practical utilitarian purposes alone, garbed in a certain amount of secrecy. The, the Masonic Lodges have played a useful role in some of that. And so you'll find either that the people who play a positive role either are in the lower rungs, or what you'll find, I've seen a lot of evidence that at least before the 19th century, um, throughout the 19th century, there was a fight, and especially the 18th century, there was a fight over uh, opposing lodges. They're not all on the same page. Mm-hmm. And some lodges were instituted. Um, like if you look at uh, Mozart's Lodge in uh, Austria, you, it was under this fellow named Schenkenader. And Schenkenader is a scientist. He's an educator, but he also published a lot of manuscripts for the population to teach people. He was demystifying the symbolism and giving people a sense that the symbolism within the Masonic schools was actually 
intelligible, accessible, and manageable. Like you could, you could get excited about the real science, whereas the, the occultist Freemasons who played a more nefarious role in history tended to hide behind symbolism, that there's, there's no intelligible reason why the Pentagon has the character that it does. It's just that by knowing it, by attributing certain meaning to sacred geometries, you are granted a, a feeling of having uh, interfaced with a divine force that ultimately makes you more and more, it gets kind of Kabbalistic. Um, it makes you more arrogant. It makes you more inclined to think of yourself as God over time, instead of having a, a, a spirit of piety more generally that, you know, you, or humility, which human beings need to have humility if you're going to be a functional human. You can't have that overbearing pride that you have secret knowledge only for you and the secret elites who have been through a similar set of self-conditioning, right? Um, by priests who are already up the chain of command. The Jesuits work in a very similar way of self-induced indoctrination, uh, mental exercises that have you essentially convince yourself that white is black if your superior says so. And you pass the test because you're examined frequently when you give the right answers. So yes, white is black. Yes, good is evil. Yes, you know, uh, it was virtuous to kill that uh, child or puppy or whatever uh, that I'm given as my test because my superior says so, or I, I indoctrinated myself to have a reason that would let me pass a lie detector test thinking that I was a good person. So you cleanse your humanity away as you pass through these rites. And, and two people could give the same answer or two people could give two different answers at the same test. One person would be like, no, I'm not gonna kill the puppy. The other person kills the puppy. They both are told that they passed the test, but one person's uh, destiny within the Masonic network is gonna be kept at a, at a very limited domain, you know? They'll have a glass ceiling where the other person will then rise higher. So you have sort of two cultures. Um, what I've seen is that the better Freemasonic lodges who represented the revolutionary or, and I would say revolutionary from the positive sense because you had like color revolutionary anarchist Bolshevik type of operations as well that also used Freemasonic networks, okay? <laughs> but, the, but back in the late 18th century when the American Revolution was there, was happening, you know, Ben Franklin, Marquis Lafayette, uh, Washington, many others in Germany were all coordinating internationally through these lodges. But there was a fight between lodges and what we see, because, you know, you don't have internet. How do you maintain secret communications along large spaces of uh, distance, you know, when it takes you four weeks to travel across the ocean to get a message, you know, when you're coordinating revolutionary activity in France and Poland and in Russia, um, all of these countries, and that was a big part of my, my first volume, the whole all of these countries, even as far as India, were involved in the American Revolution, like Hyder Ali and the, the Muslim rebellion against the British were coordinating. How were they coordinating? It was through some, some French lodges in, uh, that were set up in India that were able to get secret communications to and from without being read by those who would control over the, the shipping lanes, the seas. You know, if, if it, there's so many ways to, <laughs> that, things could, that plans could go awry. Um, so there was that practical aspect of it. The by 1815, after the Napoleonic Wars, the uh, more like the satanic lodges um, came out victorious in Europe. I don't, I don't see any evidence after 1815 of humanists, the humanist lodges having survived. They were per, they were completely purged um, through the restoration of the monarchies and the Napoleonic Wars of Chaos, which, again, was funded by the same bankers as well. Um, and I don't see much, I see that there was a, a, um, a continuation of the more positive um, Masonic, some of the lodges in the United States a little bit afterwards, 
But even by the 20th century, I don't see a lot of evidence of that um, continuing into the 20th. I don't see today any positive humanist, humanist effects from any of the, 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 the currently existing configuration of lodges that currently are in place now. Um, I think that, I think if anything good has fallen, I, I think. Mm -hmm. um, similar for the Jesuits, the Jesuit order, you know, I, I see good, good being done by the lower order Jesuits who, who have objectively done great goods. But the higher up uh, power structures within the Jesuit hierarchy have always worked to sabotage good things that were done to feed orphans, to provide infrastructure in, in China or Japan or other. Um, and even like sabotage, like Pope Francis, you know, worked with hardcore right-wing governments in uh, Argentina and South America to kill his own Jesuit liberation theologians who were then like tortured and killed en masse in the 70s. So he's a Jesuit killing Jesuits. Like they were lower order throwaways. So you've got, you know, that whole thing going too. So when I approach it, you can't, a lot of people want to skip steps and just go straight into secret societies. I don't think you should do that right away because it requires um, an infrastructure, a, a space that has been cultivated in the mind to start triangulating um, solution concepts to how to how to see their role at different points in time and space and um yeah there's a lot more we could have a whole discussion on that really but i would just say that. yeah and you know reason being that i i chose the uh the masons um is because you know 14 u.s presidents were you know part of the masons roosevelt himself um so there's they've clearly had a huge hand in shaping um you know the history and, and the world in which we live today um, yeah, exactly. And just like the, there's two Americas, you know, like there's there's battles yep. in every institution between those who are want to kill and enslave and destroy and those who actually care about people. And you'll find every there's no crystallized finished state in any nation or in most institutions. There might be some that are totally evil, actually, but, but you'll find <laughs> in the Masonic networks that there's the similar nuance. You will find it just like in the Vatican, too. There are popes who are poisoned. Mm -hmm. Why are they poisoned? How do they make it up the hierarchy to the point that they can ban the Jesuits like they did in, like the Pope did in 1773 um, or ban the Freemasons as Leo did in, in, in the 1890s? You know, like there's, there's so many Popes who are poisoned and, and are murdered, um, but it's not just the, what are they doing? Who's on whose toes are they stepping, right? What, what evil power structures are they, are they challenging? Why did Pope John Paul II get shot in 1981? What was he doing? Why did the, the previous Pope die after 30 days? You know, the mm -hmm. Godfather part three uh, tells a little bit of that story, how to save the Pope. Um, what was the P2 Lodge in that process, right? And if um, we bring it to today, like you, you look at what's going on, these, these secret societies, um, uh, they're not secret anymore. They're full on out there. Like the, the WEF, a perfect example. And you've probably like, to your point, there are people in the lower rungs of that who think they're actually doing good. They actually believe in the ESG bullshit. And that they're going to yeah, save probably. the world. And like, you know, but we all know this is a freaking rotten to the core agenda to dehumanize, depopulate yeah. and um, gain complete and utter control over people's lives. Yep, exactly. Exactly. I'm going to have to. Uh, yeah, Matthew, gotta, it's been an incredible rip. Um, how can I end it? Bitcoin, yes or no? I like it. I got a wallet. Good. Hold on to it, brother. Keep stacking. We need you on our side. <laughs> yeah, sure. No, I mean, you know, I, I'm just, 
I'm not as like, it's not my everything, but I, you know, yeah. I see a positive role that it, that it's playing. Um, so it's good. Um, yeah. Cool. <laughs> well, All keep, right. keep coming on Bitcoin shows, man, because we love digging into these, <laughs> um, these history and, uh, thank you very, very much for all of your work. Uh, I urge people to, to check out your writing, your Substack. where can people find you? And then we'll close this down. Okay, yeah, they can uh, they can find me most easily on CanadianPatriot.org. It's a website I've been hosting since or managing since uh, 2012. My book series on the untold history of Canada, as well as the Clash of the Two Americas, that I've co-written with my uh, my wife Cynthia Chung. That's also easily available, easy to find. If people want a, a signed copy, they can write to me at uh, CanadianPatriot1776 at tutanota.com, and uh, I can give you the information for a signed copy. Last thing is my Substack. It's sort of the bread and butter. So that's uh, matthewerritt.substack.com. There's the free and paid varieties. And lastly, lastly is risingtidefoundation.net. So that's the last website. If you really want to look at something a little bit more on the cultural, educational side of things, um, risingtidefoundation.net is a nonprofit. I, I uh, direct with my wife as well. Um, so that's a lot of homework. Yeah, I think yeah, that's good. For yeah. sure. All right, brother. Okay. Take care. Thanks for coming on. Thanks. Bye. Well, guys, what did you think of that rip with Matthew? Thank you again, Matthew, for uh, giving up so much of your time and coming on to the show and coming on to Bitcoin shows. I know you, like I said at the beginning here, you've been on uh, K-Van's show as well. Uh, it is true. Us Bitcoiners love digging into all of this historical data and trying to connect the dots. And you, you've made uh, a brilliant career out of this investigative style of yours and trying to take it from you know one spectrum to the other using all of the data that you can find out there digging deep and trying to make sense of this as well obviously none of us were ever in these rooms when this went down so we will never know the exact truth but we can get as close to an approximation of that truth as we possibly can by reading these documents and studying the times uh and matthew i i think you're, you're doing great work and probably the deepest work out there compared to anybody else in in your field as well so thank you hats off to you and to your wife cynthia as well who co-wrote uh your books which again guys go go check him out go listen to matthew on some of his other podcasts and uh, well you know where to find him now um as he said there at the end of the show all of his links uh please guys keep doing what you're doing out there talking about bitcoin um whether it's with your your friends your family already and now talking to your your local merchants uh, it is important that we do start pushing the idea that we just need another form of payment out there that we can start using that we can start calling our own this is a grassroots movement uh, you have nothing to lose really go and you have so much to gain so go for it uh, please show your support as well to the show sponsors if you can uh, you can reach out to these guys either via their Twitter or just head over to the links in the show notes. But you've got some great guys out there building brilliant products. Swan Bitcoin, chiefly uh, out of the US. In Europe, we have Relay and Coin Corner where you can go and stack some sats. Uh, you can take care of your Satoshis because we talked about 6102 in this executive order 6102 in this podcast at length. If you control your coins, they're yours, so do it before an exchange gets closed down for whatever reason and everything on there stolen 
for whatever reason. So head over to shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bitten. Get yourself a Bitbox 02 Bitcoin only edition hardware wallet and take control, guys, please. Uh, hit me up if you go into any of the following. Riga, Amsterdam, Liberty in Our Lifetime in Prague, or Surfing Bitcoin in Biarritz. If you want to get across the Pacific Bitcoin, Swan Bitcoin are throwing a huge party. Link in the show notes. And of course, I'm running out of music again. But of course, please do not forget that there are other pleb projects out there that are doing great work. Huge shout out. Bitcoin Racing got a podium finish this weekend. Sunday was Bitcoin Infinity Day. The lads turned it on. Liam Browning managed to come in second in the final race. Showing the Bitcoin way he did not trust, he verified on the last lap. There was a green flag, not a checkered flag, to run one extra lap. And he overtook three cars on the final lap, got himself up to second, flying the El Salvadorian flag. It was great to watch. Go and check them out on Twitter. You can fund them as well. It's a pleb movement at Geyser Fund, who are also doing great work building pleb projects. Uh, so that's that's just one thing to look out for. If you're trying to orange pill friends that do not speak um, English, buy them a book in their native tongue. Go to Consensus Network. See what they have for you. Nico and the team are doing their best to translate or transform as many books into as many different languages as possible to get this message of Bitcoin across to those people that are not uh, you know, exposed to the um, the content that we, we are so lucky to have as English speakers. And... Get yourself some merch. Let's start wearing the t-shirts that are out there. Support Max over at Bit by Bit Podcast. He and Mr. Crown have put together ungovernable misfits. And if you hit the link in the show notes, you can go check out the shop, see if there's something there you like, and get yourself some some nice t-shirts, some nice evening wear as well. Uh, yeah, <laughs> go see for yourself. You will get a discount if you use the code Bitten. Uh, like I say, check the show notes. Thanks everybody for listening i look forward to the next show thanks again matthew for coming on really appreciate it let's uh let's have a great week everybody stack sats stay humble and take care